the Netflix API is accessed by developers at Netflix who build for over 1,000 device types. TVs, smartphones, VR headsets, laptops. If it has a screen, it can probably run Netflix. On each of these different devices, the Netflix experience is different. Different screen sizes mean that there is variable space to display the content. When you open up Netflix, you want to efficiently browse through movies. The front-end engineers who are building different experiences for different device types need to make different requests to the back-end to fetch the right amount of data. This was the engineering problem that Vasanth Asokan and his team at Netflix was tasked with solving. How do you enable lots of different front-end engineers to get whatever they need from the back-end? This problem led to the development of a, quote, serverless-like platform within Netflix, which Vasanth wrote about in a few popular articles on Medium, which are linked to in the show notes for this episode. This platform enables front-end developers to write and deploy back-end scripts to fetch data, decoupling the responsibilities of front-end engineers and back-end engineers. The tight coupling of front-end and back-end engineering was problematic to the development velocity at Netflix. And if you know anything about Netflix's culture, you know that development velocity is the height of importance. We've done many shows about Netflix engineering covering topics like data engineering, user interface design, performance monitoring, Falcor. If you want to find these old episodes, you can download the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS and for Android. With these apps, we're building a new way to consume content about software engineering, and they're open-sourced at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. If you're looking for an open-source project to get involved with, we would love to get your help. Vasanth Asokin is an engineer at Netflix. Vasanth, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me here, Jeff. You're on the show to discuss this article that you wrote, actually a couple articles, about Netflix's serverless-like platform. And the Netflix API is accessed by developers who are building for over 1,000 device types. Phones, TVs, virtual reality. You've got all these different people who want to build front-end interfaces into the back-end system that provides the contract for here is a video go ahead and play that video what are the requirements of that api between the person who's writing a consumer like a vr headset or a tv or a phone the contract between that and the server that is delivering the video that's a great question i think it gives us opportunity to go into the background for how the netflix api was and how it evolved. So it started out being a traditional RESTful API. Given the tremendous growth Netflix experienced and its proliferation to a number of device types over time, at one point the API team realized that a one-size-fits-all model could no longer scale. And uh, even as developers, let's be honest, we've seen a number of public APIs and we've written uh, code that consumes those APIs. When was the last time that we saw an API that was just perfect for our needs? There was always this little uh, bit of information that you need on top of what it gave you. You had to make an extra call. Uh, the payload wasn't quite formatted the way you wanted it. So it, it was just not scaling in terms of the proliferation of client developers and device types. Also, the other aspect is an API written to handle the needs of a UI experience on a, let's say, a powerful device that's working in the US, working off of a megabits per second connection. It simply does not provide the same ergonomics for, let's say, a device that is underpowered and working in a part of the world that could be on, say, a kilobits per second connection. Even if such an API could be designed, it's a very slow innovation model. So both consumers have to go to the centralized API team and ask for a change when they want to change. And then the centralized team has to implement it, has to make its way before everybody gets the benefits. But Netflix was optimized for innovation velocity. We have uh, dozens of A-B tests going on simultaneously at any given time. And the centralized API model does not lend itself well towards each 
client developer optimizing the API experience. So th that were, those were the requirements that sort of drove the API innovation within Netflix. And uh, the central goal was how can we enable a wide array of different APIs to evolve and be active simultaneously. Uh, so today's Netflix API, it's quite unique, born out of these requirements. It's an experience-based API. Consumers customize the API with the help of server-side code, and that allows them to deliver the experience they need to their devices and customers. Developers are only responsible for the adapter code that they write. That's a quote from your article the ideal experience of a developer is that you want to just have an API that regardless of what system they're developing a client interface for, they can plug into Netflix's backend in a seamless fashion and you know the minimal amount of code has to be written on the front end. Explain what an adapter is and what the experience of a developer who is writing an adapter is. Of course. So the adapter is the piece of code that runs server-side. And it talks to the central API. So it runs server-side or runs client-side? The adapter is a piece of code that runs server-side. I see. So our entire platform is built as server-side infrastructure. The developers are client developers. They are UI engineers, typically device software developers. And they write code that executes on the device. So the most interesting thing about the platform is how can you let someone who is a client developer, who is a UI engineer, operate a piece of uh, software that runs server-side with the least amount of effort and complexity. So th those were actually core motivations for the platform. And the adapter that we refer to in the article is a piece of code that actually runs server-side. And I'll get a little bit more into the details of what form these adapters take and so on. But ultimately, the goal of these adapters is to take in a device request and... Uh, do the necessary processing required to satisfy that request and send back a response that is custom fit for the device that requested it. You've got developers that are building against this Netflix API and the experience of building against that Netflix API is similar to the serverless functions as a service platform. We've we've explored this on a bunch of different previous episodes so if listeners are totally unfamiliar with the term serverless, they can check out one of those previous episodes. Let's assume they know what a serverless platform is. Describe the analogy that you're drawing here between the Netflix API and the function-as-a-service style platform. The analogy is actually pretty high level. So the goal of serverless platforms, um, off-the-shelf commercial serverless pl platforms, is to raise the abstraction levels to the point where one doesn't have to worry about physical hardware instances, provisioning them and maintaining them. And users write functions or pieces of code that get scheduled onto instances that are managed and provided by the third party. In the Netflix API model, developers get the exact same abstraction level. So they actually don't know anything about what hardware instances actually execute their code. They do almost no operations of any sort around the underlying instances. Uh, but do keep in mind the implementation, uh, the Netflix implementation is, is bespoke, architecturally speaking. Organizationally, too, we are set up in a way that a central platform team operates the underlying infrastructure and takes away some of the con concerns that you would still have to solve if you were, you were, if you were using an off-the-shelf serverless platform. Even off-the-shelf platforms cannot and will not take away certain operational concerns. So in our case, because we have a central team, some of those things are alleviated and taken care of. So the analogy is very high level, uh, but it's very close when it comes to just the developer experience of operating a serverless platform. Mm -hmm. How do you define that term serverless? So the accepted and common definition of serverless out in the industry is infrastructure that is stateless, it's compute infrastructure. It is very ephemeral and typically built per use. The infrastructure that we refer to uh, is fully managed by the third party. And developers do not directly concern themselves with the management of the underlying hardware instances. Sort of implicit in this whole idea is 
that there is efficient resource utilization because when the serverless instances are not being used or maybe uh, underutilized, the third party is free to sort of take out the backing instances, tear it down, reuse it for somebody else. So there's sort of efficiencies of scale and efficient resource utilization, which allows you to sort of get lower cost per CPU cycle, uh, so as to speak. Mm-hmm. So this is the very uh, accepted definition of serverless in the industry. Agreed. So what was the motivation for what you built with the serverless-like platform at Netflix? Explain exactly what you were building. In our case, the traditional selling points for commercial serverless platforms, they were not actually our goals. We were not trying to optimize resource utilization or build client teams. All of our client teams are internal. Some of them are external, but we weren't trying to optimize their cost. What we were trying to do was raise the abstraction level. Like I mentioned earlier, a lot of the engineers that are uh, wanting to customize the APIs, they're UI engineers. They write client software. They're not microservice developers. They do not want to be on-call or they do not want to operate a piece of machinery that is running server-side in a, a stateful or a long-lived manner. So what we wanted to do was raise the abstraction level for them. And that was fundamentally the single biggest goal for why we came up with a, a platform like that. You want to remove their responsibility to spin up a cloud instance and make sure that that cloud instance stays up, scale it up, scale it down... You want it, You want them to have more of a Twilio-like experience where they're making an API call and that's it. And the the API ma- the the person who is responsible for the API management will take care of all the heavy lifting for all the people who are consuming this API. That's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. What are the advantages and disadvantages of the serverless style world that you wanted to move to? Let's take advantages to start with. So from the perspective of a developer, and in my opinion, abstraction and velocity are two big advantages for why you want to use a serverless solution. So how can a developer or a development team spend more time focusing on their business goals and their business-oriented software and less time sort of on the nuts and bolts of the machinery. For many use cases, the other benefit of serverless is the idea of efficient resource utilization and thus cost savings and precise billing based on actual use. So if you are a startup with a great new idea, you are likely more interested in testing and quickly evolving your idea. So basically development velocity and running lean rather than hiring a team that is very skilled at operating server-side infrastructure. So that's, that's one of the biggest advantages. From the perspective of the serverless platform provider, it's really efficiencies of scale, allowing, you, uh, allowing yourself to treat your physical hardware as a sort of an elastic pool into which you do fine-grained scheduling of compute work allows you to better utilize what you have. So it o- opens your business up to a wider pool of developers who come to such a platform for the the benefits that we previously stated. So these are advantages for both the consumers as well as the providers of a serverless solution. Mm -hmm. When we look at disadvantages, and if you are just focusing on operational disadvantages, at a high level, the main one is that because you've raised the level of abstraction, you've also taken away some of the control. This is generally true for all things, right? But the implications of loss of control could be significant depending on your precise use case. Mm -hmm. And this is not to say that a good balance cannot be reached. In my mind, it seems possible for serverless solutions to sort of follow the principles of progressive disclosure. So that's an interaction design term which implies you provide enough details for the user to get started with an experience. But if the user desires more, more control or more data, there is a way to get to it. So because you've built your solution up in layers, it's possible to peel sort of the layers of the onion and go in into a deeper level if you so wish. 
Uh, I do think it is possible for serverless platforms to do this and break open the abstraction if users want more control. Mm -hmm. uh, developers can then dial themselves up or down the abstraction chain, depending on their particular need. Mm -hmm. oh, I was going to mention one other disadvantage, which we've seen in our experience. This isn't so much a disadvantage coming from the platform itself, but it's more around the design patterns that we saw for such serverless applications. Because serverless is such a natural fit for breaking up large monolithic applications into fine-grained ones, what you typically see is like a dimensionality increase. Uh, so what used to be one big application could be now 10 or 20 smaller ones. And what we have seen is that that increase can stress many of today's conventional workflows and manageability aspects. And so it's, it's really a trade-off. Would you rather spend more time managing hardware instances or do you want to take on new and possibly different operational tasks because now you have like 20 of these things? Right. That seems like an interesting one to discuss because if you've got a monolithic backend service that is going to serve the right video to whatever API adapter uh, is requesting it. Maybe it's a VR device. Maybe it's a mobile phone in a low bandwidth environment. If you want, you know, let's say in in the initial non-serverless world, you've got some big monolithic API, and it just vends all those different types of video from its monolith. And then you say, okay, in order to do this right, we need to break it up into different uh, microservices that will vend, you know, this one vends the uh, low bandwidth version of the video, this one vends the mobile version of the video, and so on. That turns into a lot of different services that you're managing, and uh, it can get much more granular than that. And then you start to get into a world where you have dependency management, and you have dependencies of services upon each other. We often think about dependency management as a matter of a single computer managing different packages, but this is a sense in which dependency management becomes also a distributed systems problem. You've got different services yep. that depend on one another, and they're getting pretty granular. And it sounds like that leads to some operational burdens that are not trivial. You're absolutely right. The way we uh, think about it is you've taken a big picture and sort of broken it up into little jigsaw puzzle pieces, right? Operationally, you need to build back the big picture, and that's, that's where I think the opportunity lies. So I don't think this is an end state. I don't think this is how it is going to be going forward. It's actually exciting opportunity for providers to sort of reassemble compositionally the, the big picture post the fact, but still allow you to independently operate these fine granular bits when you need to. What kinds of services make sense to be decomposed into serverless-like services? Could you give me some, because we discussed the API that vends different types of video as a certain example. What are some other examples of things that seem like good candidates to be broken down for this platform that you've built? Talking about serverless solutions outside Netflix, even processing is the other big use case where this makes total sense. You have one little event which has to trigger some computation, some processing, and maybe some state storage into a database somewhere. Use cases like that are like really good fits. Events tend to be bursty or uh, varying in nature and scale over time. And a serverless solution is a great fit for that. If you're talking about the Netflix serverless platform, it was purely built to handle stateless request response handlers, route handlers. Also, given the nature of a microservice-based service-oriented architecture, to render a single response back to the client often involves making dozens and dozens of calls to lots of different backends and assembling all of it together and sending back one response to the client. So uh, what we built in the Netflix platform is very much oriented towards this. How can we make it easy to compose these dozens of calls in an easy, resilient, and performant manner? So those were kind of the main goals for what kinds of services uh, we can operate on the platform. That sounds almost 
like a workflow orchestration system that you were trying to build. You're trying to make it very easy to wire together scripts and run those scripts economically. That is accurate. Though I would say a workflow sort of implies a slightly more heavier processing than what ends up going on here. Uh, a workflow typically involves taking data from somewhere, doing some heavy lift, number crunching, or processing the data, and then uh, saving the results. But in our case, the data itself tends to be pre-computed by various tiers all over Netflix. Uh, there could be a tier that has pre-computed your subscriber information. There could be a tier that has pre-computed your sort of your A/B test profile. So it's really about getting these pieces of data and assembling them. So it's, I would say it's a more data composition uh, type workflow rather than any heavy batch style workflow. The way you describe it in the article is the developer experience is to write scripts that contain application logic. What is an example of a script? So all of our scripts are primarily devil, uh, request response handlers. They take a particular device request, do pre-processing on the request, maybe decorate it with some state about who is making the request. And then there's a whole bunch of downstream data collection involved, which then gets processed by the script, assembled into a payload, and rendered as a response back to the device. Other than that, uh, this is what it sends back to the device, but other than that, the script may also do some sort of data collection or publishing metrics which could be useful for business use cases. Um, as a trivial example, like how often did a customer click on their bookmarks? Hmm. So there's some sort of metric collection and data processing that's going on. We had this show recently about video infrastructure, and the show was all about how when you upload a video to YouTube, for example, Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, that's going to be rendered into a bunch of different versions, and this is you know it's, it's transcoded into these different versions that will run at different bit rates depending on what the client who requests it is. If the client is requesting it over a T1 connection and they're watching it on their smart TV, maybe you render it with the highest bit rate av- available. If they're mm-hmm. requesting it on a smartphone in the middle of nowhere and on low bandwidth, then you want the lowest bitrate uh, quality video possible. And there is this huge combinatorial explosion of the different, well, not huge, but it's a sizable combinatorial explosion of the different videos that can be requested here. And I just want to, I want to clarify what exactly we're talking about here, because we're talking about, you know, this API uh, provider that, that provides for these different uh, clients. So when we're, are we talking, is that what we're talking about? We're talking about like these different request types, these different uh, clients who are requesting client side experience or, or different yeah. video types or what exactly? Oh, that's a really good question and uh, probably useful clarification for the rest of our talk. So we are actually not talking about the API request response handlers that actually send the bits of the video. Just like how you described for YouTube, Netflix does something very similar, and this is probably documented within our tech blog uh, in great detail. All of the videos transcoded ahead of time for various profiles, device profiles, and the act of pressing play on a particular video gives you one particular stream from one of the Netflix CDNs. Uh, So that's a completely different request response sort of path. The... API platform that I'm referring to and the scripts that we are discussing here, they are what gets executed as you browse the Netflix UI. So starting from the time that you power on the Netflix app within your device, how the app gets all of the data it needs to boot itself up and then render a UI experience that is tailored for the customer that requested it and the device that that requested it. So these are the APIs involved in giving back what we call the discovery data, the data that allows you as a user to sort of discover the title that you want to watch Mm. up to the point that you press play. And this is not to say that we are not involved after you press play. There is a, a whole bunch of scripts that are still involved, but they aren't actually sending back the bits of the video. 
they may be involved in, let's say, saving away your bookmarks. Up to what point have you watched the movie? They may be involved in tracking back the customer quality of experience. What bitrate did we send? What was the actual UI performance as you used the various pieces of the UI? The search experience and so on. So the scripts that we are referring to here, they help power that experience. Mm. Are, so are they doing things like getting recommendations and custom the the custom feeds or simpler operations i mean you mentioned bookmarking something i i guess bookmarking something is not uh, well how much more complex is a request like bookmarking than a request like gathering recommendations are, and are the, are both of those things fits for a script that would run on this serverless like platform that's a good question so to answer that example specifically both of them go through this api platform that we are discussing okay but that said, the nature of work tends to be very similar. And uh, part of uh, getting to understand why that is the case is that recommendations aren't done as the user is actually using the UI. A lot of things are pre-computed. They've already been pre-computed. So it's more a data gathering exercise when you actually open up the app. Uh, your recommendations have been pre-computed ahead of time. So it's not so much that the script goes and actually computes the recommendation it goes fetches the pre-computed recommendations. Of course. So if you think about it, then that isn't that different from a bookmark. Right. That's just like a database query. It's very straightforward. Exactly. You mentioned that the serverless type of requests are great for bursty workloads. It seems like these types of requests would be more predictable. You you know, you know you all you know at any given time you've got you know, people that are going to come there, people are going to log on, they're going to, you're going to have people that are requesting bookmarks, you're going to have people that are requesting their recommendations. Why is it more economical to frame this as a serverless style platform than to just have an EC2 instance that's standing there able to do all the bookmarking? Explain the economics of, of moving to a serverless like platform. That's a good question, and one that we kind of partly addressed uh, in an earlier question. Our goals were actually not the economics. Our goals were really around the development. Oh, that's the right, the ergonomics, and, yes, yes. And yes, the ergonomics yes. and the abstractions. So the, keep in mind, these are UI engineers. It's very hard for them to oh, understand. Yes, of course. I mean, it's not that they're not skilled. Of course, anybody can pick up those skills. It's more a skills fit. What are they good at, and what would they actually like to focus mm -hmm. on? is the data gathering exercise. And th this can actually get quite complicated. On the surface, a Netflix UI experience may appear simple, but if you look at the sort of the data graph that is needed to render a single page, it's really complicated and goes through at least five or six different service tiers with a huge fan out on each one of those tiers. So it's really oriented towards solving that use case. And so, yeah, we weren't driven by the economics of it. We were more driven by the developer experience of it. So that said, as the person who is maintaining the the back end for this, do does your serverless request processing system, does it look like an AWS Lambda or does it just present a contract to the front-end engineer that feels like an AWS Lambda? That's a really good question. So specifically talking about our current generation platform, it provides a experience that is not similar to AWS Lambda. So the key thing about Lambda and other such solutions is that server instances are lazily provisioned. So let's say a particular script is not getting any requests. The first time a request arrives, an instance is actually spun up. And so there might be some cold start delay and so on and so forth. We don't have that. We have instances pre-provisioned and ready to take requests. We do auto-scale them. We do scale them up and down during the day, depending on the traffic profile. But that said, it's, it's very different from how the actual scheduling happens in Lambda. What we do present is the exact same contract that Lambda provides to the developers. So the scripts that we're talking about here, this is like a script that 
takes a request for a user's recommendations or takes a request for bookmarking a video to watch later and then it hands back a response to the developer how much code goes into that script what is the experience of the front-end developer who is writing those scripts it varies so some scripts we've seen are really lightweight and literally a few method calls that are chained together but over time we've also noticed that some scripts have gotten quite big they have code that spans easily a couple of dozen uh, packages have deep inheritance hierarchies and if you look at the call graph within a particular invocation uh, or the stack trace it can be very dense some are complex enough to have deadlocks and memory leaks and all that kind of stuff and so it's kind of an inside joke but some of them have become microservices in their own right they are no longer tiny little scripts but really big almost fat applications mm. but that's actually speaking to one of the advantages of serverless because it's optimized for developer velocity the code can very quickly evolve what started out as something very simple in a matter of uh, weeks or months uh, can quickly become a big big piece of uh, software and that's that's what it, the serverless platform gives you you don't have to decide either ahead of time or on, a, on an ongoing basis should i run this on an m3 to excel should i upgrade myself to m4 you just don't so the platform provisions and accounts for the actual re- resources that you consume i want to keep coming back to this high level example to make sure the listeners as well as myself understand what we're talking about here so let's say uh facebook comes out with a new device that is like smart glasses and it's got you can watch netflix on your glasses and mm-hmm. I'm I'm the client developer that is responsible for creating the interface. Uh, I'm the Netflix developer that's responsible for creating the Netflix interface where I can watch things on my smart glasses. Right. Is that a situation where I, as the client developer, I'm going to have to write a back-end adapter because I'm going to have to write a specific way to request recommendations, for example. I'm going to have to use the new type of real estate on this new device in a creative new way and because it's a creative new way I'm going to need to write some backend logic to get the request going and I'm going to do that on this serverless like API platform is that an accurate use case that is a very accurate use case and one that illustrates quite a few variations you already mentioned sort of screen real estate it is not scalable to give you the exact same ui that you would get let's say on a what we call a 10 foot device uh, like your smart tv there's a lot of real estate you can see rows and rows of movies there's just no way to put that onto a glass so the netflix client app that is developed for those glasses is not likely to make the exact same kind of request hmm. what it is likely to do is maybe take the user's voice input and just play that title right it could be optimized for that right. it could be optimized for a second screen experience uh, you are likely to have a smartphone and you have your glasses mm-hmm. maybe you do some sort of discovery process on your smartphone yep. but the actual playback happens on the glasses so you can see already quite a few variations to the use case and that's why a single client app just doesn't work on all these different device profiles mm-hmm. And I love the development velocity there because in a world without this back-end adapter system where the front-end developer is empowered to write their own custom recommendation system call, the developer would instead the front-end developer would instead have to go over to the recommendations team and say, "Hey, can you modify the API and just like get this new, you know, maybe then go version the API so I can get my smart glasses prototype up and running and then you've got these communication barriers that you've you've got to go set up a meeting with that recommendations team and they've already got 30 meetings today and it, this just this yep. is the kind of thing that slows down innovation and this is one of the things that Netflix does so well that some people don't really know about is this culture of continually turning the crank to get things innovating faster you are absolutely correct that is the single biggest motivation for this api platform 
and it gets a, even more nuanced and hairy. So we already talked about gla- the glasses as being a device profile that's very different. It's not just oh, going to the API team and getting a new API added or an API change. What if you want to do a completely different sort of caching behavior? These are underpowered devices. Maybe you want to cache the data longer compared to a TV. Having the script adapter layer allows you to do quite a few things completely off your own accord, completely your own innovation that would just not even be possible by going to a central API team. Describe the deployment process. I'm, I've written my script to recommend the to get the recommendations that can fit onto my glasses uh, i want to deploy that script so that i can quickly get up and running with my new glasses prototype system how am i going to deploy that script and be able to call it the deployment experience uh, starts with an sdk that we provide to the developers the software development kit contains various tools that allow them to both develop and deploy these scripts uh, the same tools can be used to query their deployed state, get inside, etc., etc. Deployment itself is actually just a single command that they execute. Uh, and in the case of our platform, it takes five minutes to execute, after which the script is available instantly on all the API instances. It is possible to deploy it globally. Netflix is deployed in multiple AWS regions today. And so it is possible to deploy globally uh, within five minutes or what we actually recommend the developers do is go region by region in order to mitigate issues and catch issues earlier. So they can also go to a particular region. And the deployment tools give you the controls to do either global or regional deployments. Mm. So is there a, a CI pipeline for the scripts or anything like that? Do, do you need a CI pipeline? Oh, there, most definitely. There is a CI pipeline. We let the developers themselves design their own CI pipelines. And there's good reason for this rather than just provide a canned one out of the box. Like we already spoke about, these serverless applications are kind of part of a bigger puzzle piece. And CI and deployments have to be part of larger workflows that include most often the client. And so the client teams are in the best place to design their specific CI pipelines and optimize them. And in fact, the CI pipelines are very common and very successful. And they're so successful that we actually see sort of 10 times the deployment velocity in pre-prod than in prod. Uh, Literally every commit gets uh, CI tested uh, through this pipeline and deployed to various environments. How much of Netflix's infrastructure could potentially go in this direction to the serverless-like system because you you spent all this time building this platform and you've got the the use case of the, I guess the client that that client API use case well I guess mm-hmm. that the, even that itself um, that is such a general uh, problem that you're solving uh, I guess that in and of itself would be would be worthwhile but I you know there's so much so much so many other things to Netflix there's so many other components uh, you know, right. back end, you know, d- data people who spend all their day doing data science, people who uh, have these long running analytics jobs, you know, they've got Spark and Hadoop, and they've got layers and layers of scheduling and infrastructure built around those offline data analytics. Is that at all related to what you're doing? Uh, it's not. So definitely our API platform is very custom built for request response handling. Okay. It's not very suited for long-running batch scripts or analytics. Uh, It's also a very sandbox platform, so only specific dependencies are allowed. You cannot make network calls to any random thing uh, out of the wild. The lifecycle is also very strictly controlled, and you get access to standard hooks. Like you cannot, for instance, reboot yourself, which is something that certain use cases may need. Uh, To answer your question, like let's take a specific example. We use Cassandra as the data tier for a lot lot of Netflix applications. It would be impossible to run Cassandra on such a platform. Uh, There are so many other considerations that go into making Cassandra what it is. It's a very specific topology to how the nodes are deployed and how they can discover and communicate with each other and so on. So there's none of those provisions on our platform. 
That said, request response use cases, definitely they can use such a platform. And I would extend that a little further to say serverless is a really good fit for most of your typical microservices, things that are stateless. Well, the event sourcing example you you touched on a little bit earlier. I don't know if it's event sourcing or CQRS. I don't remember which one is which, but the idea that you've got this event log and you want to be able to react to events by updating multiple data stores. Like you want to update Elasticsearch and you want to update your Mongo and several other materialized views in response to an event. And the thing to do that updating might be a serverless function. That's that's a great use case speaking broadly about serverless. But again, that is not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about just presenting a contract to the front-end developers that makes their life a lot easier. So the recommendations and the bookmarking and these other things that a client-side developer wants to be able to impact code on from uh, uh, impact server-side code with, they're going to want to compose these functions together. They're going to want to be able to build... Well, why don't you describe, what's the modularity and the composition story? What is the motivation for wanting to compose different services together for one of these API engineers? Are you referring to the composition that is needed to give the final response to the device? Yes. Or are you... Yes. Okay. Uh, the reason for composition is really an optimized UI experience for the client. So imagine you bring up the app. All of those uh, pieces of data come from very different systems. If you take any 10-foot device, for instance, there's a search widget at the top right, and maybe your most recent searches have to be there ready for you to be able to click on it. Likewise, you also get some sort of profile data uh, out of my five different Netflix profiles, which one am I currently on? So I need to render that and maybe render a user thumbnail uh, for the profile that's active. I also need to render all of the movies and there's a certain ordering to them where's the, the set of movies that I've uh, added to my list. I want to see that up front. And then there are all the recommendations that follow right below it. So you can see that even to render a single page, it goes to very different systems. And so that's where some of the composition needs arise and why a single script has to do the effective composition for one particular UI page, literally. Does this relate at all to Falcor? Because I know Falcor has been used at Netflix to do simplify the request response kind of a scatter gather approach to to bringing a, a what what might otherwise take a bunch of different requests are you're able to do it in fewer requests it most certainly does so falcor is heavily used as a layer uh, api layer within these scripts so there is a central sort of falcor module that we have published and most of the time script authors what they do is they take the falcor library and then they implement a particular JSON graph for people that are familiar with Falcor. Uh, and the analogy is GraphQL from Facebook. So there's a certain model that these uh, users of these libraries build up using uh, these core components. And that model, data model, is what is exposed in the response back to the device. Mm -hmm. So we definitely see a, a lot of these scripts use Falcor. Uh, some of them don't. So transactional use cases, sometimes they prefer going with a lighter model where they directly uh, do the underlying transactions themselves without using Falcor. The process of managing dependencies uh, can get complicated. You might need versioning on uh, different versions of the API. Uh, talk about that process of being able to manage different versions and allowing for modularity? Definitely. So another element to how these scripts are authored today is that you can compose these scripts on top of each other. So the piece of code that runs server-side, it can be made up of multiple bits, and then the bits can express dependencies on each other. 
The reason that we did this is in the earliest version of our platform, we only allowed sort of individual route handlers to be authored. And this led to a lot of what we call copy pasta. So <laughs> code just being copied from a previous implementation willy-nilly, taking it, applying it somewhere else, making a slight change. And you can imagine what sort of manageability this would have. So we did see a lot of desire for sharing code, lightweight pieces of code. And that's why we, in the later version of the platform, we designed a first-class sort of dependency system. There's also Conway's law. So as teams grew and uh, the Netflix UI needs grew, we saw teams being formed around some central uh, functionality. So as a quick example, the originals UI, Netflix is now very heavily into originals. And we have a very custom-tailored UI experience around that. Uh, there's a central team that is totally in charge of understanding and optimizing that UI experience. And the code that they write is desired by many client device experiences. And so what we enable them to do is write a shared module. And then as producers of the shared module, teams can version and release updates to these shared modules. The client developers, the consumers of the shared module, then express dependencies on certain shared functionality. And we have a versioning system that allows them to sort of express what sort of binding they have with the shared module. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, to round it up, we have a fully dynamic system whereby a shared module can be updated by the producer at any time. A consumer, depending on what sort of binding he has expressed on the shared module, can pick up that update. And this has led to some very, actually quite complex composition patterns, just purely server-side. We're not talking about the data composition, but just one piece of script, all of the bits that go into executing it, where does that come from? We actually have a fully dynamic system there uh, where they can bind themselves to different uh, common bits. Mm -hmm. We've been focusing on what you have built from the perspective of the developer that is leveraging it. Tell us about building this pr product for it's almost like an internal product for developers yourself. What is you know I know, I know we're we're running up against time a little bit, but give us an overview of how this works on the back end. Definitely. So there is a central platform team that is operating the machinery upon which all of these scripts execute. It started around five years ago. And actually, it was a little bit before my time at Netflix started. But I did live through the bulk of the maturation and the innovation on the developer experience set of things. The, the platform was actually born while we were in the midst of rapid growth. And like I mentioned earlier, the central API team was just unable to scale towards all of this um, growth and all of the use cases that came out of that growth. Likewise, there were also numerous operational issues and innovation uh, caps with the traditional architecture. So what we did is build a custom implementation that listens to activity by developers where they are asking for a particular piece of code to be deployed. And our infrastructure takes, it maintains a registry of what route handlers are currently known, what new route handlers device developers want to publish and it goes to a backing store, fetches the underlying scripts that execute that particular route handler, stores it within fully managed API instances. We use class loading technology, uh, so they're all Java applications, so we use class loading technology to load these scripts into isolated class loaders and when a request arrives, there's a routing layer that understands which uh, backing piece of code is best suited to handle a particular request. And it redirects that via a method call and some wrapper code that gets executed. And a particular device's request is then serviced. The job of the platform team is to A, operate these really complex API instances that are co-hosting and multi-tenanting completely different disparate script code. And their goal is to run it in a way where it's safe performant and resilient to various manner of issues. Can you tell me 
some of the takeaways from building this serverless-like platform? What were the lessons that you learned while constructing it? Our biggest lessons, I would say, came from sort of the development velocity. There was general love for how easy it is to deploy using this platform. And the biggest surprise is the scale of growth and the rate at which this platform was being used. When I joined, and this was around four years ago, I remember there were maybe 100 scripts total, which were updated maybe you know once a, once a week. Some were updated maybe two or three times a week. Activity was just starting to ramp up. Uh, fast forward to five years later, we have thousands of scripts, uh, maybe even tens of thousands if you include the pre-prod environments. And if, especially if you take the pre-prod environments, they get updated sometimes a hundred times a day in aggregate. And so there's a lot of change. There's a lot of activity at this layer. So to me, that's the single biggest insight. Once you make it easy, you really see how well it's it's actually taken up in terms of adoption and usage. In terms of the learnings, uh, our blog post highlights quite a few of them, but it goes back to what we were speaking earlier. If you take a big piece of code and you break it up and you allow independent developers to author those fine-grained bits, what you end up having is nobody has the complete big picture. Everybody is very effective and optimized towards operating their little piece of code, but issues tend to be cross-cutting. How do you know what is actually going on when it comes to the big picture? And so to me, the, the learnings I would say are more towards how can you give them the benefits of operating things in a very fine-grained fashion, but extend the abstraction of serverless towards solving a lot of the day-to-day operational use cases. How do you recompose sort of the bigger picture and not be burdened by having to manage dozens and dozens of these tiny little things? Okay, Vasanth. Well, it's been great talking to you about the Netflix serverless-like platform. I will put both of the links to your articles in the show notes. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, It's been wonderful getting to discuss our implementation and our learnings with you. Thank you. Wow.